Well, we're continuing our study in Acts 13, and before we read the passage, uh, the question that I have from last week when we looked at the church and the preaching at Cyprus, I should say, uh, before they went to Cyprus, the church was doing something before the Holy Spirit um, sent them out, and do you remember, without looking what was the church doing when this, before the Spirit said, send out Barnabas and Saul? Were they twiddling their thumbs? Praying and fasting, yes. They were ministering and worshiping the Lord with fasting. Then the Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Good. Well, let's read our well, part of our text, we have a big section here, Acts 13, beginning at verse 13, and we'll read to the end of the chapter to get the context, but we're only going to cover a portion of it today. Acts 13, beginning at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials said to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. Verse 20. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, the one who the one is one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. From those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him 
nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But Christ, but he whom God raised, did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed or justified from all things, from which you could not be freed or justified through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. When the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. We'll stop there at the end of this sermon that Paul was preaching. And we're looking at probably verses 13 through 26 today. And the title is Preaching at Pisidian Antioch. This is a different Antioch than we already looked at. Pisidian Antioch. And the first verses, verse 13, we're probably around 33 to 34 A.D. here. Verse 13 begins, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos. That's on the island of what? Cyprus. Cyprus. If you look at your map, hopefully you have maps in the back of your Bible, you can see that Paphos is the city, the port, on the west coast of Cyprus. So Paul and his companions set out from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So, and I'll try to maybe print out a map. I think copyright is a bit of an issue. 
so maybe not. But um, if you look at, at that map, if you have one, and you can see where they began over in Antioch, which is in the northwest corner of the Mediterranean Sea or modern-day southeast corner of Turkey, Antioch. They sailed over to Cyprus. They landed at Salamis. They traveled across or on the edges of Cyprus, came to Paphos. Then they sailed north to Perga. And he's, it's mentioned here he has companions. We don't know who they are except for who's with Paul here? Barnabas, that's right. But John Mark uh, left them, it seems, when he got up to Perga, he, he returned to Jerusalem. So there are other companions. Maybe they were new disciples that uh, came to believe in Christ on Cyprus. We don't know, but he had these companions, uh, and, and Barnabas at least, and then John Mark left. And, and just a reminder, I failed to, to remember it myself, but John Mark, um, he, he wrote what book in the Bible? Mark. So he's maybe a young man here, and um, you know, was he researching? I mean, he'll, he'll come up again. There's a disagreement that will arise between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Uh, maybe he was researching his gospel. We don't know, but uh, it's it's important to remember that that point. Who this man, who we believe he was. But they're traveling uh, from Paphos to Perga, which is about 150 miles. Again, a long trip. Uh, through the Mediterranean here, and landing in Perga, uh, which is in south-central Turkey, in the modern-day Antalya province. And you can probably see Perga on your map, um, if you have one, I hope. And they're going to travel further north. Uh, but did he preach at Perga? We don't know. Um, verse 14 says, but going on from Perga. He may have preached there or just stopped and headed north. We're not sure. But they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, which you can see, which is a bit north of Perga. Uh, there's a couple lakes there, and Pisidian is just above those lakes, Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So they traveled these 150 miles by sea and then another 100 miles inland to Pisidian Antioch, which is part of um, the Roman province of Galatia. And Galatia extends from near the coast all the way north uh, to northern Turkey. And there's this is important for understanding the book of Galatians and parts of the New Testament. And you may have heard of the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory. Uh, there's a lot of research, but Pisidian Antioch was part of southern Galatia, or i.e. south Turkey. And they were preaching in this region for almost a year. So there's a lot that's going to happen in this region of Galatia, and particularly here at Pisidian Antioch, thus preaching at Pisidian Antioch, or Antioch of Pisidia. You can say it either way. By the way, I found that there was a road, a Roman road, and Rome built roads wherever they had their um, cities and colonies, and this road was called Via Sebaste. And there was this Roman road that went nearly directly from uh, Perga all the way to Pisidian Antioch. And these roads helped spread the gospel uh, all around the Mediterranean. So they most likely traveled on that road 
all the way to this Pisidian Antioch. Now, why would they go to Pisidian Antioch? We don't know, but it's interesting to note that you remember the guy that was converted on Cyprus that we we read about last time, the Roman governor, Sergius Paulus? Well, apparently, according to history, he had family who owned estates in Pisidian Antioch. Again, we don't know for sure, but maybe after he was saved, he, he sent letters and he told them, hey, you should go to Pisidian Antioch and I'll give you some credentials or I'll reach out to my family who lives there and there's an opportunity for you to tell them what you told me. We don't know, but it's uh, interesting to note that that man, maybe he even joined them. We don't know. Maybe he was one of the companions or he probably had duties as the governor of Paphos. But nonetheless, he had relatives who owned lands up in that town. Now, it was on the Sabbath day, and they went into the synagogue where the Jews met. And going into that synagogue, what was what was their goal? Was it to have a debate? No. To preach the gospel. And why would he go to a synagogue to do that? A big gathering. And what type of people were in the synagogue? Jews. And God was saving Jews. And here was Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And God had prepared him in a mighty way, yes, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but surely to the Jews. And they were in the synagogue uh, doing the things that they did every Sabbath, which was, what does verse 15 say? Reading the law and the prophets. And Paul is going to preach using uh, truths from the law and the prophets. So in verse 15 it says, The synagogue officials, plural, sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation, so maybe they, they planned it ahead of time or they just reached out to them in this synagogue, if you have a any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And, and lesson one of eight Generally, by illustration, what a blessing to find those who want a word of exhortation. What a blessing to find people, in this case, the synagogue officials, who say, do you have a word of exhortation? Uh, That's excellent that these people want a word of exhortation or a word of encouragement, a word of help, a word of comfort. They wanted to hear something and they heard Uh, maybe stories or received letters. We don't know what happened behind the scenes, but this synagogue and the officials wanted to hear more. And and surely they heard that Saul of Tarsus became a Christian. They wanted to hear more about it. We don't have the details, but surely all that had happened, they heard something. News traveled on these Roman roads by letter or by people, and maybe even by Sergius Paulus. Again, think about how they would even know who they were. And so they wanted this word of encouragement, this word of exhortation. And what a great thing to tell a preacher. Please give us a word of exhortation. We need a word of encouragement. What a blessing. Verse 16. Paul didn't say, oh, no, not really. I'm Yes, brother.
Amen. Yes, absolutely. And, and these words are excellent to describe the truth or preaching. And it's nice to look at different translations, encouragement, exhortation, help, comfort. Yes. No, keep going. Mm. Yes. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. Right, we hear epistle of warning or epistle of exhortation, which is how we've received it here ourselves. No, it's, it's a good word, and I think we should use Bible words when we can. Yes, thank you, Tom. Well, verse 16, he stands up and he motions with his hand uh, whether to, you know, quiet down, hopefully it was not that loud in the in the synagogue, but or to get their attention, okay, I'm here to speak, you know, I'm raising my hands, I'm ready to speak, and he says, men of Israel, and you who fear God. He's going to address the men, and apparently the ladies sat separately uh, behind a, a sort of a, a wall that so they weren't distracting you can research about the synagogue. I know John has taught on it before, but he's addressing the men in particular, and he calls for silence or attention by his hands. And he's going to give this message that is somewhat of a historical lecture with theological interpretation. And it's similar to the messages that Peter gave in Acts 2 and 3, reviewing some of the history of Israel, and even Stephen in chapter 7, looking at this history so you can't say you don't like history if you're a Christian. You, you need to receive most of our Bible is a book of history. And Paul's going to give a historical uh, sermon with theological interpretation and, and this ethical summons as well. Uh, you can, the people have outlined the sermon. It's, it's a, there's a lot here. I would have loved to do it in one message, but there's so much that I had to break it in half. But you could outline the sermon in three ways, verses 17 through 22, Israel chosen by God. Verses 23 through 37, Jesus, the promise of God. And third, 38 through 41, believers in Jesus forgiven by God. So Israel chosen by God, Jesus, the promise of God, believers in Jesus forgiven by God. And verse 17 is going to uh, set us up to really understand a lot about Paul's sermon at Pisidian Antioch. Verse, yes. Sure. Israel chosen by God, 17 through 22. Jesus, the promise of God, 23 through 37. And believers in Jesus forgiven by God, 38 through 41. And you'll see a theme that I'm going to bring out here in a moment from verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the prophets great during their stay in the land, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, Iguptu, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. He's going all the way back to 1400 B.C. He's covering a lot of history. He's going way back in Israel's history 
all the way back to uh, the beginning, and, and near the beginning at least, particularly referring to the Exodus. But as we noted uh, in the outline, as we're going to he- hear um, chosen by God, the promise of God, forgiven by God, lesson two, and we're going to open this up, but God-centered preaching is what people need. God-centered preaching is what people need. And did you catch it? I tried to emphasize it. God chose Israel. God made them great. He led them out. He put up with them. He destroyed the nations. He gave them the land. He gave them the prophets. He gave them Saul. He removed Saul. He gave, he raised up David. He testified about David. He brought up Jesus. He raised Jesus from the dead. He fulfilled the promise. Therefore, take heed and believe in him. And as I was trying to think about this passage and I was reading it, 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 it was opened up to me that the emphasis here is all of these he. And there's these verbs that God did this and he did this and he did that and he did this and he did that. It's a great illustration that God-centered preaching is what people need. And of course, we could say God-centered living is what we need to be God-centered in our preaching, in our evangelism, in our lives is critical to have that God or Christ consciousness. And it's very clear in his message that he's teaching the Jews in this synagogue that it's all about what God did. From the very beginning, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made. Moses isn't even mentioned which is interesting. Uh, Moses is mentioned in Peter's sermons and Stephen's sermons, but here he didn't even mention it. And maybe to to give an emphasis, it's not uh, about Moses, and we'll hear about the law later, but in this particular section, it's all about he, all about God. So again, who chose the fathers? God. God chose the fathers. He begins with God's choice. And it's in the middle voice. And God chose these people for himself. He chose the fathers. He chose Israel. It's interesting, you may have heard this or thought of it before, that people that don't like the doctrine of election often clearly accept that God chose Israel, not Egypt, not Ethiopia, not other countries, but He chose Israel. So God is a God of election, of choosing, and He chose Israel. It's a good illustration if people are offended when they hear about election. And by the word, it's the same word used in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose or elected Um, you might ask them, well, you're against this doctrine that God would choose people for himself. What about Israel? He chose them, not for anything in them. He chose them because he chose them. He didn't choose Egypt or others, for example. It's a good way to maybe disarm an argument that folks may have against uh, election when it's very obvious that God chose the people that were not good, that were idolaters, that sacrificed even their children to babies, and yet he would choose this people. Why? Because he chose to. Because he chose to. 
Not only did he choose them, he made them great. He, he lifted them up. He exalted them. He placed them in a high place. Also, it says, with an uplifted arm, he led them out. And we call that the what? He led them out of, of Egypt, of the Exodus, and it's, and it's the Greek word exagagen. Exagagen, Exodus, we can hear it right there. So God led the Israelites out of Egypt with this arm, emphatically an arm uplifted. He led them out. It's anthropomorphic language. God doesn't have arms, but His strength. He led out Israel out of Egypt and He made them so strong. An uplifted arm. He did that. It was nothing in them. Lesson three. See God's strong arm rescuing His people and trust Him. As we see what God did in the past, even here in the message of Paul to the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, we see that God's arm was strong. He led out the people of Israel out of Egypt, and therefore we can trust Him. See God's strong arm rescuing His people and trust Him. Many Psalms have this theme. Psalm 89.13 You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Even in that great uh, chorus in Psalm 136, Psalm 136 has a similar refrain right in the middle um, as he's singing, To him who smote the Egyptians and their firstborn, for his loving kindness is everlasting, and brought Israel out from their midst, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 12, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. We praise God, and even today we can see that as He carried Israel out of Egypt, He can carry us through tough days. He has the same strong arm to bear it for His people and to carry us through. So there's encouragement. Even as we're reading Paul's sermon to the Jews, we can be encouraged as we're reminded of God's uplifted arm, His strong arm, His mighty arm. You could look at later Psalm 124, 1 through 8. If it hadn't been for the Lord, we would have perished. And maybe you've had that case where you were in a car accident and you walked away when you could have been killed or something happened to you. And, and we look how weak we were, how weak we are, and yet God carries us through. And we can use those reminders to trust Him. He has a mighty arm for His people that has not changed. So we can rest in Him. We can rely upon Him. Trust Him. He has a mighty arm to carry us through. Maybe it's getting up tomorrow morning, back to work after a four-day vacation, and you think, I just can't do it. Do you ever have a morning like that? I just can't make it, Lord. I don't even want to get out of bed. Well, He can carry you through. And we've had seen many trials over the last few weeks in our little church The Lord's mighty arm carries us through just as He carried Israel out of Egypt. Many Psalms talk about this truth. Many passages show the mightiness of our God. Even what shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trial or tribulation, distress, peril or sword? No, his loving kindness is everlasting. His mighty arm will uphold us. Be encouraged. That wasn't Paul's main message, but an illustration that we can take. Verse 18, Paul continued his message to the Jews in the synagogue for a period of about 40 years. Some of us have barely lived 40 years. He put up with them in the wilderness. Who put up with Israel? Some of us are a little more than 40. Yeah, that's true. He put up with them in the wilderness. God put up with them. Again, He. He put up with them. Put up with what? Their bad conduct. The way they were murmuring and complaining in the wilderness. They would come to him and then fall away. They would come to him and then fall away. He put up with them. It's a little bit of a disgusting phrase and like at times we're like, Lord, just obliterate them. Yet, he was so patient. Again and again, he put up with them. He bore with them. He was long-suffering. He has the longest fuse of anybody. God is so patient with Israel and of course with us. Lesson four. The patience of God should lead us to repentance and worship. The patience of God should lead us to repentance and worship. Even here, for 40 years, God put up with Israel in the wilderness. For decades upon decades, he put up with them. And if you're a Jew in the synagogue hearing this, you might take offense, or with God's grace, you'll say, wow. God is so gracious. God was so patient with Israel in the wilderness. So even they or ourselves, let that lead us to repentance and worship. Romans 2.4 or, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? And I add worship. God is so patient. Look at ourselves. We blew it again. God is so patient. It doesn't allow sin, but it gives us a reverence and a repentant heart and worship. God is patient. Aren't we attracted to patient people? When you see someone that is so patient, wow, they are so kind. They are so patient. If someone's impatient, do you like to be around impatient people? Impatient drivers on the road? Maybe we, we're like that sometimes. Impatience is, is ugly. But God is the epitome of patience, which should lead to this repentant heart and worshipful heart. And Paul is remembering that he put up with Israel. Verse 19, not only did he put up with them, verse 19, when he had destroyed or overpowered seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance all of which took about 450 years, a much longer period. God destroyed the nations and distributed the land to Israel. We have the list of those those seven nations in Deuteronomy 7.1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, 
and the Jebusites, seven nations, and I love this description, greater and stronger than you. Israel was weak. And yet God would dispossess seven nations who were way stronger than Israel and give that land to the Israelites. And I thought of our study in Joshua, and you can read Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Were any of those promises, did any of those lands, were they not given to Israel? No, they were all given. Not one promise failed. And Paul is reminding the Israelites that not only was God patient with them, but He gave them all this land of these seven nations. It took time, 450 years, but not one promise failed of the land being given to Israel. 450 years, less than five, sometimes God's promises take longer than we want. Sometimes God's promises take longer than we want. I'm sure they wanted all the land right away, but it took half a century, excuse me, four and a half centuries, 450 years, but it's always worth the wait. Sometimes it's short, Sometimes the promise of God is immediate. Sometimes you're waiting for hundreds or thousands of years, even for the return of Christ. We're waiting. But the, it's, it's going to be worth it to be taken up in the air or we die first and go to meet Christ. God's promises can take longer than we want, but it's always worth the wait. And they waited 450 years, and it was worth it. They got land that they didn't deserve, that they never would have been able to overpower those seven nations. God did it. He gave them the land. And he's emphasizing over and over, God did this, God did this, He did this, He did this, He did this. It's shutting them up to the idea that they could do anything in and of themselves let alone produce the Messiah, which God is going to, it's going to be explained momentarily that God will bring him. Verse 20. After these things, these 450 years, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Now the judges, maybe we can study the, the book of Judges one day, maybe some of the judges at church camp, but the Lord raised up judges who delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Judges 2, 16 and 17, and it adds, yet they did not listen to their judges. God raised up judges, yet they didn't listen. Again, he had to put up with them. He was kind enough to give these judges to counsel them, to defend them, to fight for them, to guide them, yet they didn't listen. That those, the refrain we hear over and over that every man did, did that which was right in his own eyes. Yet God gave them these judges, these leaders, until Samuel... Samuel, um, who God was with, and it says in 1 Samuel 3.19 that none of his words failed, uh, and all Israel knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. He was a prophet. He was like a judge, but he was called a prophet, even here in our text. He gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet a prophet of the Lord. And he would be the one who would anoint 
saw, which was how this verse transitions. So Paul is going over this history of Israel, showing them what God did. He mentions now the judges. He mentions the prophet Samuel, verse 22, after he removed him. He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Who removed Saul? God. And who raised up David? Yes. And who testified about David? God. Again, it's God-centeredness. God would raise up this man, David, who at the time was a boy who would be anointed by Samuel, a man, and he would be a man after God's own heart to do all of God's will. But that David, his, his whole persona and the promises to David are pointing to another. Verse 23. Verse 23. From the descendants of this man, that is David, According to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Maybe a, a good Christmas uh, text here in Acts 13.23. From the descendants of David, according to promise, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Lesson 6, simply rejoice. Jesus was the promised seed of David. He jumped forward a thousand years from David to Jesus. He skipped a lot of history. He'll mention a little more soon, but he wants to be clear. Paul wanted to to remind the synagogue attendees that all those promises to David were being fulfilled now in the Savior Jesus. What was the promise to David? God said, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There had to be a kingdom. There had to be a throne. And that king is Jesus. That throne is the one on which Jesus sits. Luke said, The same author of Acts, Luke said, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. The kingdom of Christ. Jesus is the son of David fulfilling the promise to David that his descendant, his son, his greater son, David was the type and Jesus is the anti-type. David sat on an earthly throne. Jesus sits on the heavenly throne forever. Acts 2.36 says that Jesus was made both Lord and Christ. At the resurrection, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. And I take that as the full fulfillment, clearly showing that Jesus is King. Of course, it's the now and not yet that He will fully and finally destroy all of His enemies, but He sits on His throne Forever, His kingdom will have no end. The kingdom of Christ will have no end. Just as God had chosen Israel, destroyed the seven nations, God chose David and made the promise to David and that it would, that it would be 
that God would bring to Israel a Savior, Jesus. God brought forth, just as He brought forth Israel, He brought forth Jesus. And who did He bring Jesus to? Israel. He came to His own, but His own received Him not. The the promises to the Jew first. Jesus came to the Jews, their Savior. Some of them believed, but most didn't. More of that as we continue the passage. But he was speaking to a Jewish synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. He went through the history of Israel, ultimately coming to the, the promised Messiah, the Savior, the Son of David, Jesus who will save his people from their sins. By faith, they would receive this message that was very attractive, all the history of what God did with Israel, and even bringing the Messiah, the son of David, and some of them will believe, some of them will receive Jesus, some of them will follow Jesus, even among these Jews and the proselyte Jews who were in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. Paul built the case that there was a God-centered history for a thousand plus and a half years B.C. that God was accomplishing a work, bringing it down to the, the apex of history in the birth of Jesus. According to promise, God promised to have one on the throne of David forever. Time is almost gone. I think we'll actually stop there and see what comments or questions you may have. Then we'll have some time to wrap up. And I'll read our six lessons if you missed any of them. We began, what a blessing to find those who want a word of exhortation. What a blessing. And even at the end, we're going to see that they kept begging them to come and preach again the next Sabbath. These people, some of them, some of them didn't want them, and you'll see that, but, but some wanted this word of exhortation. They were ready. They, they wanted to hear more about Jesus, the son of David. Lesson two, God-centered preaching is what people need. When we evangelize, when we preach, when we speak, we want to be God-centered. Lesson three, see God's strong arm rescuing his people and trust Him. See it in history, and trust Him in the present. Lesson four, the patience of God should lead us to repentance and worship. He put up with them. Does God put up with you? In Christ, He he bears with us. He is kind. He is patient. Look at the apostles themselves and how patient Christ was with them. And if we look within, yes, The Lord is very patient with me and it should lead me to repentance and worship. Lesson five, sometimes God's promises take longer than we want. 450 years, but they got all the land. And finally, we said rejoice. Jesus was the promised seed of David. It's fulfillment. The promises were fulfilled. The Messiah had come. The son of David and we'll see the son of God. That's fulfilled in Jesus, the promised one. It's the good news. And even as we go into the Christmas season, maybe people are a little more open. Through all the year, let us proclaim that Jesus, 
fulfilled the promise. He is the promised seed of David. Well, next time we'll take it up at verse 27 to the end. I, I trust um, we didn't make it as far as we want to know, even verse 20, 24. Comments or questions before we wrap it up? Okay, well, hopefully you've drawn some lessons and we didn't find this a, a dry history. Uh, God's history is beautiful and it should be meditated upon and studied May he make it profitable to us. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in this great message that Paul preached at Pisidian Antioch, that he went all the way back to the Exodus to show not only what Israel did, but more importantly, what you did. And through all of their history that you were acting, you were exalting, you were bearing, you were being patient, you were being kind. And Father, when we look at our own history, we see the same thing. It is all of your grace. It is your mercy, your patience, your kindness, your long-suffering. Father, we thank you for the great plan of salvation, that you made these promises to David, that you would seat one on his throne forever, and we see that fulfilled in King Jesus, who is Lord and Christ, exalted, and to be exalted even more, in the days to come. And we would say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Be with us now as we continue our time of worship and fellowship. May you get all the glory for Christ's sake. Amen.